Welcome back to the First John series. I did say First John. It's okay. Y'all have Americans in your midst. We're not, we're not invading, but I don't say one John. I get confused every time. I know I'm wrong. Jesse pointed this out. I'm sorry. I, I can't do it. When I say one John, it's like, mm. anyway, so um, the last time we talked about this was seven weeks ago. I think, at least, it's been a long time. But what's wild about talking about First John is that the message of compassion that we heard this summer, the message that the Venus shared, is essentially the same message as, as 1 John. It's the same central message that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has established a kingdom of peace, and that he invites us to be a part in extending that to the world. And so when we hear things about the woman at the well or meeting the poor in their need, we're talking about the same message as the one that John is talking about. Now, diving back into this, this book can be really challenging because it's full of repetition and callbacks and references. It's a little bit like watching episode 11 of a series where every episode builds on each other and that recap in the beginning is frustratingly lacking and giving you all the details and you sense there are moments where you should be going, <gasps> but you don't really know why. Right? This, is, this is this book. And so I'm going to do my best to give a recap, but I would encourage you to read the book yourself after today because when you do, you'll probably go, that's what John was on about. Okay. Um, this, this book... <sighs> It's so frustrating. I'm just going to be real. When we, when we pre prepared for this as a preaching team, people kept saying, yeah, he's repeating himself a lot. How are we going to do this? Or what do you do with that? Or that's a hard one. Or ooh, like, right? And so we're invited into a moment where the Spirit wants to make clear what can be unclear, where Jesus wants to present himself and what can be challenging. Um, interestingly, this section I'm about to read has some clear callbacks to the last time I preached. Um, which I think was May, maybe. Months this year feel like decades, so I'm not really sure. Uh, when I last preached, I talked about how Jesus is the Messiah, which is a Hebrew word that means Jesus is the Christ, which is a Greek word that means Jesus is God's chosen king to shepherd the world with justice, to shelter people from the storm, to bring a kingdom of peace and of healing and of hope, that he is the one chosen before time to deliver us from evil. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is a message of hope and one worth proclaiming and defending and standing for. And so when we read this passage, you're going to hear that message playing out, but in some unusual ways. So keep that in mind as I read the text for today. So today we're in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And I'll let you guys turn there if you have a Bible or a phone or a hologram? I don't know. <laughs> Some of y'all have more technology than I have. Starting in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, 
and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he testified concerning the Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who has the life, sorry. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Okay. I'm going to talk about this passage out of order, which feels weird, but books like this, texts like this, these are, these are ancient texts that don't work in a linear start-to-finish logic like we're used to. We're used to introduction and conclusion and some defense in between, but you'll see repetition. You'll see people make defenses by making the same point at the beginning and end, but then get to the real point in the middle. So it's really okay when we look at this text to try and find where John's really taking us. So first, I just want to talk about those last six verses from 6 to 12, because he's talking about the Spirit and the blood and the water and the testimony and who has the testimony and that God has testified. And by the end, your head's spinning because you're like, am I testifying? Who's testifying? Am I listening? Uh, there's some disagreement on what's actually happening here, but there's broad agreement by scholars that what John is doing is responding to people who are questioning whether Jesus the man was really the Son of God incarnate, whether he was really the Messiah, really the Christ, really the Anointed One, because he died. And for those who questioned whether he rose again, that's a very defeating moment. If you don't believe that the resurrection happened, you wondered what happened to this king that was supposed to rescue us. And even the resurrection and the ascension can make you doubt, like, what do I do with that? He's not here anymore. And so 6 to 12 probably deserve their own two-hour-long lecture going through all the intricacies of the vocabulary, which I'm not going to do. Good news. Yeah, that's the right response. That all I want to say about 6 to 12 is, is what we want to hear in this is that we can come to a, an essential conclusion. John may be saying that the blood of his death and the water of his baptism all point to the same thing, that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, that he was identified by God in the water, and he was chosen by God on the cross, and that he defeated death and the resurrection, that these things all agree and the Spirit testifies to them. He may be saying that the blood and the water flowed from his side were proof that he died, and in his resurrection proof that he conquered death. It, it doesn't really matter as much that we hear John saying if you're questioning whether Jesus is the Messiah, fully God, fully man, stop. He is. He is who he said he was. He is who God said he was. He is who the Father spoke out about. He's given us all we need. God, the Spirit, we have this evidence. We're drawn together as a church in the Spirit. We don't have to doubt it. So this is essentially a parting shot at those who were anti-Christ or anti-Messiah or anti-Jesus saying, we don't know if this is the real deal, to which John is saying, you have more than enough evidence to believe. He's given us what we need. Don't walk away from Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who brought the kingdom. So if you want more on that, talk to someone in church. Talk to a pastor. Go to pub church. Read a book. All great options. The internet, full of stuff on this. But that's all I'm going to do for today. I did just say Google it in the sermon. I hope that's okay. <laughs> um, 
Now I want to move back to the first uh, five verses, because I think that's where we get to the, uh, the bacon of this bacon roll. Um, you can spend a lot of time in the bread in this, in this section, but I, I, we really want to get to the actual meat of the passage. Um, verses one and two can feel really weird, but they're callbacks to chapters two and three, where John started talking about being a child of God versus a child of the devil, which is really strong language. And he said the difference is a child of God obeys God, and a child of the devil doesn't. And he says, if you're not obeying God, you're not one of his children. And he says that right in verse two. If you're a child of God, you love God and you carry out his commands. That's pretty harsh, John. That's rough. I'm not gonna lie. If, if I'm not obeying, I'm not adopted, I'm not chosen, that sounds really strong. Now, for some people, your instinct is to go, that's right, it's strong. It should be that way. For other people, it's like, whoa, this is not the loving Jesus I know. And you're both right and wrong at the same time, if that's your response, because that's not a message that we're supposed to take out of context, and the context is really in the next three verses. Three, four, and five tell us everything we need to know about this passage, and there's some really massive things that he says in this that we need to unpack. One, he says that if we love God, we will obey God. Two, he says the things that God tells us to do aren't too heavy to do. Like, if he gives us a command, you can do it. Which, do we always feel that way? I'm, I'm not sure. But that's what he promises. Three, he says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. That's kind of a big statement. What does that mean? He says, the victory that overcomes the world is faith. Okay. And he says, only if you believe Jesus is the Son of God will you overcome the world. So let's unpack that really central part of this passage but in a non-linear way because we can just toss out the idea that we have to go straight through. Um, I think the first thing to take away from this is it is impossible to separate love, obedience, and adoption in this passage. Do not do it. They are not meant to be points on their own where you can just hold out love and hold out adoption and hold out obedience. They are intertwined in the way that God's heart is expressed through his family. This is incredibly important for our church today and has been throughout history. And I'm not going to talk about why. I'm going to leave that as a spoiler for a second. The next part is that overcoming is big. And what does overcoming mean? Overcoming literally means to conquer. You might be asking, why didn't they just translate it conquer? I don't know. But that's what it means. And so it, it, it evokes language of a king coming and conquering a land and taking over a territory and establishing a kingdom. And in fact, it's calling back to John 16 when Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's literally saying before the cross, I have conquered the world. So being a child of God means that we become conquerors who participate in what Jesus conquered, and that happens if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. So conquering. John also says that God so loved the world. How can you love something and conquer it? Those are not complementary ideas that we think about. When we hear conquering, we don't think, aw. <laughs> Sweet Lucy just conquered East Sands. Like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I had to throw Lucy into the bus. Everybody's complimenting her. So it's like, if you heard that Lucy, loving, compassionate Lucy, was like laying siege to all of these sands, you might be like, huh, oh, not what I expected. But how can God love the world and conquer the world? Because first, who did Jesus defeat? He defeated evil. 
He defeated death. He defeated sin. He didn't conquer and defeat and put to waste his children. Those are not his enemies. He conquered his enemies. The world he created and the world he loves got so bound up in evil and sin and death that it rejected him. And still he came back to say, no, this is the world I created. How did he conquer the world? By dying, by laying down his life, by washing feet, by loving people that no one else loved, by being with the outcasts and being with the poor and being with those that the world made victims. He was with them. Now to that you might say, well, if he did all this, if he conquered all the evil, why is there still evil? I don't have enough time to answer that question, and if I had more time, I probably wouldn't do it in a satisfactory way. But what can I, I can say is this. As vineyard people, we're broadly committed to this idea that the kingdom is now and not yet. Meaning that when we're part of God's family, his kingdom at times breaks in as a promise that his kingdom is still coming. So when we see people healed, and we see the poor fed, and we see lives changed, and we see hope arrive, we're reminded that these are glimpses and small pieces of a kingdom that is not in question, that he's coming back, and that he's going to finish what he started. So how do we now participate in conquering? And I'm going to keep saying conquering because I think we need to rethink this. To be honest, I think some of us subconsciously are trying to conquer, but not the way Jesus does. But I mean, like, I'm going to get victory for Jesus. And Jesus is like, whoa, bro, you're cutting off ears right now. This is incredibly intense. Stop it. I'm, for those of you who are like cutting off ears, there's a part in the Gospels where Peter, trying to defend Jesus, cuts off someone's ear. And, and Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. That's not how I get my victory. And it's a reminder for those of us who think the way to defend Jesus is to cut off ears. It's just not his way. So we conquer in faith by receiving the gift of faith that God gives us because it doesn't start with us. Jesus says, here, I'll help you believe in me and then we cling to it, this gift he gave us. We become adopted children. He brings us in the family and says, you're not alone anymore, you're one of my kids and we get wrapped up in a love and obedience that comes from that. Now I want to go back to this idea that love and obedience and adoption cannot be separated. What are the two greatest commandments that Jesus identifies? Love God, love people. Love and obedience. How can we love God and love people? Within the family of God. How do we think of this? I think we get into trouble when we start thinking that we can talk about obedience to God in terms of lines and boundaries and standards without love and adoption. We become like children who think that our parents have left and left us a list of instructions, and we're getting in a fight over who's following them better. Ho, ho, when mom and dad get back, you're going to be in trouble. When dad gets back, when mom gets back, when grandma, whoever your, whoever your caregiver was growing up, you get into this argument like, oh, who's better at following this list? As if God is not in the room. As if when two or more are gathered, Jesus is not right there with them. As if the Spirit is not aching to give us unity. Instead of being swallowed up in the family of God and the love of God and obeying out of that, we're like, one second, God, we're talking about which one of us obeys you better. And I'm really concerned about these three or four people who I think are not obeying the way that they're supposed to be. I'll get right, no, I, I know you're trying to talk to me. One second, I know it's very important, but one second, we're fighting. <laughs> what this means practically 
is really important, and I want to give you an example of what I mean in Scripture. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives this list of examples of what it looks like to obey him and to follow him. He says, feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, tend to the sick, and visit those in prison. And he says, when you did that, you did that to me. And people say, like, when did that happen? He goes, anytime you did it for the least, you did it to me. Okay. For me personally, I have my challenge moments in that list. That list may be incredibly easy for you. Trust me, there are commands that are hard on your own. For me in that list, tending to the sick was always hard growing up. I don't know why. Probably some mix of like trauma and psychology that we don't have time to unpack right now, but it was always really hard for me to be with people who were sick or dying or in hospital. It was just really challenging. Uh, I remember visiting a friend who had had a traumatic head injury and being told, you can't come in right now because we're limiting who's in the room, and feeling relieved, and then feeling ashamed. I felt like I was supposed to go help him, and when they told him I couldn't, I was like, oh, good. And then went, oh, no, what is that? And then my son was born seven weeks early, and we had to live in the hospital for six weeks. There was not a day that I missed because there was no question that I was going to be there with my son. When we love the person we're serving, it becomes really easy to be with them in the hardest and worst and most challenging moments. Jesus said that if you do these things, you did them to me. We're meant to love Jesus so much that when we're doing the things he asks us to do, we just see him. Not someone we struggle with, not someone we're not sure how we feel about. We're meant to see Jesus. And we're not meant to do that through some love we trump up on our own, but we're meant to do it by seeing God and loving God and being overwhelmed. Think about visiting someone in prison. What if the person in prison was a family member you loved? What if they were unjustly incarcerated? It's not hard to visit them. And Jesus knows what that's like. He was imprisoned and executed for unjust charges. Do we see him in these things he's asking us to do? You see, love and obedience are not meant to be stripped from that relationship of knowing Jesus and seeing Jesus. If you asked me why I was in the hospital with Jordy, I would be like, what are you talking about? They're like, well, you never went to the hospital before. I was like, yeah, but my son's in there. But do we do that with Jesus? Why are you feeding the poor? Because that's Jesus. Why are you visiting people in prison? That's Jesus. How could I not? Love, obedience, and adoption are meant to be the white, heart, the white hot center of Christianity, and Jesus is the center of all those things. And so when we talk about this, we have to stop being a people who talk about one without the other without the other. There's not an expectation of obedience for people who are not part of God's family. There's not obedience without love. When we make obedience and love the same thing in that we make love and obedience just obedience, it's problematic because then love just becomes something we do in a box we check, right? So let's look at biblical examples. In Luke 18, there's this example of a rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not about Jesus. This is a self-validating question that's like, tell me I'm good. Let me know that I did it. Let me know I obeyed. This is an obedience question. It's not a sonship question. It's not a love question. It is an obedience question. And Jesus is not fundamentally part of this conversation. I mean, sure, he's asking Jesus a question, but it's as if he's not there. 
He just wants the law to speak back to him and say, you did it, even though Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Anyway, so Jesus puts it back on him and says, you know the law. You got to do this, 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 this. To which the young man replies, check, sorted, good, great. So I'm good, right? I get eternal life. And Jesus responds to this moment in a really crazy way. In Mark 10, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and says, one thing you lack, sell everything, give all you have to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then follow me. And in the text, it's clear the man can't do it. He walks away sad. He's like, that is too far. Jesus looks at the man and says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? What's he saying there? This young man had built up all of his security in the world that is and was so bound to it that he couldn't let go of it for the love of the one who established that the world that should be. Now, when I start to talk about these things, and I said this a while back, I'm not speaking out of condemnation. Condemnation is the voice that when you find out that you're stuck in something or trapped or in sin or in prison, says you deserve to be there and you should stay there. The voice of this is conviction, where Jesus flings open the prison door that we find ourselves in, of the jail that we're inside, and says, come on out, for I am freedom. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come out to me. So as we talk about this, this is not a moment to feel condemned. It's a moment to feel freed, convicted by Jesus. So think about that comment that Jesus makes. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Security in this world is not the same as peace in God's kingdom. It's just not the same thing. And you have to let go of one to find the other. After this happened, Jesus says to his disciples, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Which would just be a hopeful theory statement, like you never know, I could pull it off someday. Except one chapter later, he does it. And in Luke 19, this is what happens. There's a man named Zacchaeus. He's become rich by stealing from people. He's hated by his village because he's the worst. Just the worst and he's short, and he hears Jesus is coming, and he can't see him, so he climbs up in a tree. I just want to see Jesus, and this is what happens. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What is the difference? Jesus didn't even have to ask Zacchaeus. The first man came to Jesus and said, What do I have to do? Jesus told him, and he was like, No. The second man offers unasked. The difference is that Zacchaeus met Jesus met the Messiah, met the Lord, and felt the love of God expressed in an invitation that said, you may be outcast, but I want to be in your home. And he was so overwhelmed by love that he more than obeyed. It wasn't even a question. It was, this is for you. He's not looking at the crowd. He's looking at Jesus and saying, I'm overwhelmed by your love. It's not like he's sitting there doing the math. There's no calculation of law. This is generosity and obedience happening from love. Everything changes if we love Jesus. And we're not meant to love him out of some power of our own, because if we did, that would make love an act of obedience alone. If I could 
just make myself love God, that would just be an obedient act. It wouldn't be bound up in love and adoption and obedience. Love starts with being loved, because in 1 John 4 it said, we love because he first loved us. We're not meant to be just people of obedience, or just people of adoption, or just people of love. We're meant to be people of all three, with the white hot core of Jesus, gathering them together, looking us in the face, saying, I love you, and being so overwhelmed by love that obedience is not an act or a volitional thing. It's just us saying, what else could I do? Me being in the hospital with my son is the smallest glimpse of that. It's being so overcome by Jesus that you don't think about what you're doing. No longer are we debating about how to love Jesus. We just love Jesus together. We just ask for more of the Spirit to be together in loving Him and to love each other. We just become more overwhelmed by His love. And worship is the space where those three come together. You know, the word repentance in the Bible means a change of mind. It means kind of having your mind open, realizing you've been going the wrong way or doing the wrong thing, and then turning and going that way. I love that we talked about the women of the well before we started this message, because in that moment, Jesus shows up to the wrong place. He's not supposed to be at a well that time of day. He shows up to a woman that, according to some interpretations, no one else wants to talk to, and he looks right at her and says, I'm here for you. I waited for you. And at the end of that exchange, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And he says, it's me. And she's so overwhelmed. It's not just anybody who said, I came for you. It's the Messiah, God's chosen king. And the king of the universe looked at her and said, I came for you. And what does she do? She runs to tell everyone what she found out. Her obedience is not based on what he told her. Her obedience is an overflow of love and adoption and inclusion. These things come together. We are people of the Messiah. I have heard so many preaches where people walk up to the front and say, hey, we're going to have a call to repentance for this sin, and it's so fun. Isn't it great? When someone's like, you know what we're going to repent of today? People are real jerks. And then you feel the Spirit tapping you, and you're like, yay, I get to walk in front of the church and be like, that's me, everyone. Real jerk, repenting. And that's probably the least embarrassing one that I, like, I've been in some altar calls where I'm like, no, God. You walk up, and then later people are like, I just didn't know. You're like, thanks. Great. Um, But these things are matters of flow. And what I mean by that is, We can't repent of lesser sins unless we repent of major sins. And the biggest one is to love God. And we can't love God unless we receive his love first. I haven't seen a lot of times where the call at the end is, is Jesus asking you to have your eyes open to how much he loves you? Do you need to repent of trying to be a son or daughter, trying to be a child, trying to be a kid, trying to obey without receiving love first? Do you need to change your mind about who Jesus is? Do you need the revelation of God? Do you need to meet him face to face? And I think the invitation today is for anyone who wants to, to say, Jesus, I want to see. Just like the woman at the well's eyes were opened. Just like Zacchaeus' eyes were opened. Maybe I get it a bit, but I want more. I want to know your love more. I want to be overcome by your love. I want to live in every moment overcome by your love. So when I see someone who needs help, 
I'm not weighing it out going, can I help them? I'm just overcome by love. I love that Davina shared because it's so obvious on her life. She's not saying, hey, help me do this thing I have to do. She's saying, will you help me love people that Jesus has helped me to love? And so I want to have the worship team come up. And this is the thing that I feel like the, the invitation is for our, our response. Um, I want to be very careful not to script something. I've spent the weekend prepping for this, just going, Jesus, forgive me for not getting it. And every time he shows me more of how he loves me, and then it's too good. You're like, oh, it's like, what do you mean? You're not condemning me. You're just showing me more of your love. It's just overwhelming. We will never realize the fullness of his love until we finally see him face to face in the kingdom to come. But we can ask for it now. And so what I want to invite people to is into some type of physical response. To ask God to say, I need to know your love more. Before any obedience, before any act, before any command, to say, I need your love. And so if that means for you coming up to the front and having people pray for you, great. If it means kneeling where you're at, great. If it means standing where you're at. But I do want to say that we are embodied people. And if we just do something internally, often it keeps us from really connecting. Do something physical to bring yourself into that place is what I feel like the invitation is. Kneel or stand or walk forward. It doesn't matter. It can be loud or quiet. It can be emotional or it can be reserved. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. And what I want to challenge people, home group leaders and pastors, please resist the urge to serve right now before you have received. Because that is putting obedience before Jesus. If everyone is just crying and receiving from God, no one has failed. If everyone's laughing and receiving from God, no one has failed. If everybody's just stunned and receiving from God, there is not a right way to receive his love. So if your impulse is, people need prayer, I should pray, wait on the Lord. Receive his love first. Let him establish love and obedience adoption together. So I'm just going to let the worship team pray. I'm just going to open space. I'm going to move this. If you want to come to the front, the back, go where Jesus leads, go where the Spirit leads, and there's an invitation to repent and say, Jesus, I need to know your love more than I ever have. And so I just want to pray for that as we start. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall in this place. Jesus, we know you're with us, and I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see you, the King who gave everything for us. Show us all you gave. Show us all you sacrificed. Show us all the way you have loved us. Help us to receive your love. And I pray, Lord God, that there would be a revelation of your love this morning that changes everything for all of us. That it would change what our lives look like because we can't live by any other way but out of the love you've given. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to get there. In Jesus' name, amen.